Take your Bibles out and turn to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2. It's Pentecost Sunday, Pentecost Sunday. We're going to read through just a bit of chapter 2, and then um, I'll share the message. We'll pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to open up your word and to... um, to hear, uh, hear it and to contemplate it. We're so grateful that you, Holy Spirit, have been sent to abide with us. For apart from you, we have no good thing. And dependent on your work, we can become wonderfully more what we were supposed to be, what you intended us to be, in Jesus' name, amen. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Our Not all these who are speaking Galileans, and and how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, others mocking said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem... Let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. I'd like to skip to verses 32 and 33. As Peter works through a bit of a sermon there, verse 32 and 33 says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. You may be seated. Um, I think most here believe that the things 
that things will get increasingly better for the kingdom of God in the future. As it has been for the last 2,000 plus years, things have gotten better. Yet many Christians don't think this way today. Maybe you have neighbors or friends or family members or past church congregants who think that things become increasingly worse for the kingdom and that the future is bleak. I tell you this Pentecost morning that there is so much good to come in this world. The tremendous size of the plant that Jesus said would grow from the tiniest of mustard seeds is is perhaps still in its infancy. And we Christians must commit to the work of Jesus every day. But the work does not depend solely on us. Indeed, for any good thing to come, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit must be the catalyst. We respond to Him. We work with Him. The Holy Spirit works in Jesus Christ's people and alongside of us. Yes, I said we must work with him. The Holy Spirit does not possess us like a demon might take control of someone. That is not what Pentecost demonstrated. The disciples did not lose control of their faculties or become trance-like. They were not mediums at some fortune-telling event out of control of their own minds and bodies. Rather, the disciples spoke intelligently. Some, mind you, with the gift of another language or two, but they spoke intelligently. The Holy Spirit came into them in order to dwell with them and woo, woo them. And the result was that they wanted to woo, woo others by telling them of the mighty works of God. That's what was going on at Pentecost. And Pentecost itself was a mighty work of God. But the mightiest was not that the flames came down above heads or that the great wind rushed and blew and was heard throughout the town, nor was it the difference speaking in in tongues. The mightiest work was that 3,000 people were added to Jesus Christ's church that day. And my guess is other than how you saw these people respond, you wouldn't have known that a change occurred. No, the 
disciples did not lose control of themselves. The apostle Peter was of his own wits when he explained the events there in Acts 32 and 33, which I read later. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Peter was of his own mind. This is the fulfillment, by the way, of the passage I used at the Ascension Day service ten days ago, where Jesus said, I tell you the truth. I want you to hear this. I really, if you weren't here, and I think most of you weren't, okay, so, but if that's the case, you got to listen to the sermon, all right? Because this is the passage it was on. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I I still have many things to say to you, Jesus went on, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will... Not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the huge thing, the main point, is that the helper is with us. And it's the Holy Spirit who must be always the igniter and builder of all good things in the earth. As Christians, we respond to him. We work with him though we can't see him. The Holy Spirit works in Jesus Christ's people and alongside of us. Apart from him, we have no good thing. It's been the case throughout history. We need him to make us spiritually alive. We need him to convict the world. We need him to lead us into truth. We need him to strengthen us, to protect us. We need him to impress God's word in our souls and in the whole world. He makes things new. He turns upside, he turns the upside down, right side up. But he does not take over the control of our minds and bodies like an evil spirit. He came as as helper. 
and we work with him. When we celebrate Pentecost Sunday, we should think of it we should think of it as the beginning of Jesus Christ building his kingdom in his people and through them in order to do what? To engulf all of his creation. We don't look back at Pentecost at Pentecost as a single fantastic one-time event. It's more like the breaking of the dam to allow waters to be dispersed in order to cover a parched land. Or as Habakkuk prophesied, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is what Jesus is about. That is what the Holy Spirit is pressing for. This describes the end to which the Holy Spirit works. He means to take Jesus Christ's kingdom to the ends of the earth. And we must work with him. But he is mandatory. Mandatory. Some call Pentecost the beginning of the church. I wouldn't call it that, but maybe you could call it the day when God gave to the church the greatest blessing of himself with us again. On Pentecost, Peter preached the word of God. This is the second thing. There's two things, the Holy Spirit. This is the second thing, the word of God. It's required to change a life forever the Holy Spirit, and truth. Truth and the Holy Spirit. Jesus said we would worship in spirit and in truth. So the Holy Spirit does not act except alongside of the Word of God. He will forever be true to what He said. What other way would He be? We, we reformers believe it is those two ingredients that the church must rely on for effectual change. Effectual change. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God. On the morning of Pentecost, people came when they heard the violent wind. And when they arrived and witnessed the disciples speaking in different languages and teaching the mighty works of God, some of them were cut to the heart. Why? Because the very word of God confronted them like it had never confronted them before. And it was more penetrating than they had ever experienced. Like, like water filling the cracks and crevices of their souls. They had been permeated. It cut them too like a sword, which the word of God does. It cut them deeply, but tenderly, I think. Tenderly. It divided them. It divided in them the bone from the marrow. There was nothing left undone. 
the things said by the disciples, it, it laid bare their souls. And those in the congregation felt as that they had nowhere to hide, nor did they really want to hide. They knew they'd come to a significant moment in their life. They just didn't know where it went from here. They realized that they could no longer pretend with God. They were, in one sense, undone, waiting to be done again. They could only contemplate, here I am, Lord. You see me on the inside, you see me completely. You've told me what I didn't know before I came. You've convicted me of my guilt in regard to my sin, and you've shown me my Savior. Now I know my life is not my own. What must I do? And friends, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. Some of you have experienced that same thing pretty thoroughly at a point in your life where everything pivoted. Some of you grew up and it just happened in the course of time. Where the wind blows, we don't know. That's said of the Holy Spirit, the work of regeneration. But this work of the Holy Spirit, he does that. It's to our advantage then that the helper has come. The Holy Spirit brings potency, efficacy, the real producing of results. Apart from the Holy Spirit, no good and lasting change will come. You do not have it in yourself to change Yourself or your fellow man. Look, you, you might even take the Bible and reason them up and down. Yet if the Holy Spirit is not pressing with it, pressing with you, then you must wait for him to. You can't do much more. It doesn't mean you quit sharing and applying God's word to life. It simply means that you do not have the power to change others. You rely on God. He must act upon the person. It's the same for all of us. All of us. You and I, we've got to live for Jesus Christ. We've got to obey his word in every part of life. Listen to this. Sometimes we hear the word of God, but do not comply with it. It's as if we get a jigsaw puzzle. I'm not talking about we know we're sinning. It's a blatant thing, so, so clear in the word of God, and we just don't obey it at that time. I'm talking about those things we don't even want to think is from God. It's like we get a piece of jigsaw puzzle handed to us, the truth of Scripture. It's handed to us. And we can't make it fit into our lives. We don't really know what to do with it. In fact, it rubs us the wrong way, this, this piece of puzzle. But ultimately, the, the Holy Spirit won't bless that. 
if we say, put it aside. He'll convict us. It will grieve him that we don't receive God's word immediately. Or work very hard with it when it's something we don't understand. Rather than hear a truth and put it aside. Oh no. Because we don't like it. Bad idea. He will convict us sooner or later. He will remind us of that piece of puddle, puzzle sitting over there on the edge of the card table. Or the one that was slept under the floor. We've got to fit it into our lives or we are not complete. He will even discipline us for, for neglect of it. Why? It's just an insignificant puzzle piece. Most people don't even care about it. Well, he'll discipline us because he loves us. It's not acceptable to refuse him. Yet, some will refuse him even to their death. We've known people hard-hearted in some area of receiving God's word and submitting to it. They died that way. I'd say this, if they were a Christian, they know the truth now. Some will refuse him to death. Then they will learn. Then they will learn how willing they were to keep step with them, with him. Yes, I say, speak the word of God into people's lives, for it gives the Holy Spirit the tool He uses to transform the world. And for yourself, for yourself, do not refuse Him who speaks. I don't care what friends say, some brainy author or teacher that you really admired, I don't really care who it is, you will not be able to put the blame on someone else. You will carry the blame. The burden's on you to submit to him. They'll need to answer to God for teaching you something that's against God's word, surely. But you apply his word to yourself and to everything under heaven. People need to hear that. There are many occasions when someone has spoken truth into my life and I did not immediately receive it. Sometimes I suppressed it for a time, but it continued to nag at me. Or he did. Early on, as an example, I read and believed that Jesus was a complete pacifist. I taught it in my foolish youth. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Someone tells you to go one mile, you go with them too. I was ready to have some criminal come up and beat my grandma up because I was going to remain a pacifist and not use physical force to prevent him. That's how foolish you can get when you pursue 
wrong thinking. But, thankfully, an elderly Christian gentleman kept bringing up other scriptural points that though I rejected them at first, they stuck in there somewhere and the Holy Spirit kept prodding me and showing me and convincing me. I don't believe Christians are supposed to be pacifists anymore. At other times, I bristled and resisted new truth because I felt it came into conflict with the knowledge of the truth I had already obtained. Like it was a threat to the truth that I knew stood its own ground, right? I concluded the new truth must be error. But I later realized I just needed to make more room for truth in its broadness, in its girth. Just like you can always make more room in that junk drawer if you only organize it better. An example here would would be how I treated the law of God and dismissed it like so many do. We are under grace, not under law. That's enough. I don't need to think about anything else. You can keep that Old Testament to yourself. Foolishness. We are under grace and not under law, but what does that mean? Organize your junk drawer. Put things in their proper place. And at other times, iron sharpens iron. That really frustrates me, that iron sharpens iron, but I am so dependent upon it. It forces me to think harder, to think more thoroughly. You know where the most iron sharpens my iron? It's with some of my own children. How aggravating, right? But how important for me. I think there is no better value to this whole congregation than that my children are sitting in it and my children are strong in their opinions, right? They're willing to battle for truth because I am so concerned for their souls and their right understanding and making sure that they're understanding what I'm saying, that I work very, very hard at trying to be careful with the Word of God. And that benefits everyone, I think. My experience is that this iron sharpening of iron, and it's not the only time I get that, but this iron sharpening of iron won't allow me to be lazy with His Word. It won't allow me to. It makes me work hard to seek truth to the uttermost. One example, probably a most glaring example to me in recent years especially, is how challenging and necessary it is to apply the Word of God as it was meant to be 
to inform kings and civilizations, and not just the common man. But there are, are, are a lot of curveballs that are thrown and pitched that you need to try to put the bat on. And it's not simple. So I, I suggest this. Do not conclude that you will have no success with this uncle or that sister or some cousin or friend or coworker. You just speak God's word into their lives and let the Holy Spirit do his thing. You cannot write them off and say, he's so stubborn, he'll never listen to me. That's not up to you. If he's so stubborn, God will tap him on the forehead hard enough to wake him. She will never listen to me. Their school education has taught them not to believe in God anymore. They pity me as the naive one. He just believes whatever the preacher says. Never mind all that. Just speak the word of God into people's lives. Do it carefully. Don't do it self-righteously. Just speak it into their lives. That is all we're given to do. Then leave it to the Holy Spirit. He will flood souls. The great 19th century English preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, I am sure the Holy Spirit is able to make the word successful. And the reason why we, don't, why we do not prosper is that we do not have the Holy Spirit attending us with might and energy as they had then at Pentecost, right? My brethren, if we had the Holy Spirit upon our ministry, we would signify very, it would sign, uh, sorry it would signify very little about our talent. Men might be poor and uneducated. Their words might be broken and ungrammatical. There, there might be no polished periods of Hall, a preacher, or glorious thunders of Chalmers, another preacher. But if there were the might of the Spirit attending them, the humblest evangelists would be more successful than the most pompous of divines or the most eloquent of preachers. It is extraordinary grace, not talent, that wins the day. Extraordinary spiritual power, not extraordinary mental power. Mental power may fill a chapel, but spiritual power fills the church. Mental power may gather a congregation. Spiritual power will save souls. We want spiritual power. Amen to that. There there are two things I want to say before I end. Two more. The first is this. Christians, we sometimes want to lean in the direction we'd like things to be. So we ignore the Spirit ourselves. And we take and twist the Scripture or Scriptures to say what we want them to say. Like me trying to prove pacifism. Okay? We can be so committed to our way 
that we make it our mission even to prove a thing God does not support. We study to buttress our position. We argue our points. All the while, we oppose Scripture and the Holy Spirit. Beware of that temptation. Ask God to keep you from the error of your own rebellion and to correct you so that he might prevent you from building up your own little topical kingdom. Not tropical, topical. It's usually based on some issue that you're all about. That you don't build up your own topical kingdom in conflict with Jesus Christ, thereby, what? Misleading people. You know the saying, if it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then he should cause one of these little ones to sin. You don't want to lead people away from God's truth on any matter. Second thing, they say that the world's population is about 7.753 billion people right now or last year or whatever. So be at peace. For you can't change the world for Christ by yourself. Be at peace. No way. Don't even think about it. You are finite. You're very limited, humanly speaking. Add to that, you're sinners. We are. You must depend upon someone else to change it. The world. A thought came to me the other day. Though I feel highly motivated, highly motivated to change things, still God made, he made it so I need to sleep like eight hours in every 24, right? Which means I'm a bit useless for about a third of my life. And then I need to stop and eat, eat food or to sustain me when I am awake. My body is also, it's just gonna, it's gonna crash because I made for one day of rest a week. Surprisingly limited and needy am I. And what? Probably only lived to be 70, what, 80, 85 years old? Certainly, I will not be able to change much of the world at all. Yet the Bible tells me that I have been created for good works. God planned me and you before the, the world began. That for Sel Gappa should do some things for him. And the same goes for every Christian. I imagine I'm accomplishing some of those things here in Alto and Wapan. But to attempt to do these works, to worship him, to love a woman, to raise my children, to run a company, to preach his word, to promote human flourishing and, and so forth, to do these things, 
I'm utterly insufficient, and I need the helper. It was to my advantage and yours that Jesus Christ went to the Father's right hand and dispatched his Holy Spirit to earth. It makes sense. Now, the older I get, why the apostles taught us to keep in step with the Spirit of God. Galatians 5, 16 through 26. To not grieve him. Ephesians 4, 30. To be led by the Spirit rather than by the misdeeds of the flesh. Romans 8, 1 through 17. All the more reason we should bathe life in prayer if we hope to affect the things we do and make them matter. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. We work with him. Christians have for 2,000 plus years. We are regenerated by his living waters and carried along with them. Let us never impede those waters, but pray that the knowledge of God fills the cracks and crevices to the far corners of the earth. Let us pray. Lord, I ask that you would attend to us by your spirit as we sit here right now. Apply your word properly. And may we give all that we have to you. In Jesus' name.